Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The criminal legal system and our system of policing in this country are broken. While many have fought and advocated for police reform for decades, it was not until the brutal and callous murder of George Floyd on May 25, 2020, that the long overdue mass public outcry for police reform ignited. In response, the U.S. House of Representatives introduced and passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in 2020, but the bill stalled in the Republican-controlled Senate. The legislation was reintroduced in 2021 and again passed the House. Despite the mass protests by the people, the many promises by politicians, and the creation of a bipartisan committee, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has again failed to be considered by the Senate, which is the next step to becoming federal law. On tonight's show, we're going to talk about the need for police reform, the key provisions of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act bill, the future prospects of the bill, and the future of police reform in this country. Joining us for this discussion is David Green, a professor of law and one of our esteemed colleagues at NCCU School of Law. Professor Green teaches a wide range of subjects, including civil procedure and employment discrimination. Professor Green was also general counsel for the National Bar Association during the past term. So, Professor Green, thank you for joining us this evening. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Thank you for having me. It, it, uh, it is extremely a huge opportunity to participate in this extremely important conversation. So thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So we want to start with having you share how and why you became interested in law. Well, oh, so, you know, I, I went to school in the mid-early 80s. And ironically, at some point, uh, you know, my interest was um, being a science and math teacher. But at one point in college, some of the community work that I was doing, I recognized uh, how important it was to have someone that looked like me have the educational background uh, to be advocates for people in, in, in communities that historically have not been represented. Uh, you know, my mother always wanted to be, be a lawyer between that and some of the community work and some of the opportunities I had, um, it kind of drove me there. Um, then I, you know, spent time um, interning with a probation officer um, in Superior Court in D.C. And after that experience, you know, I decided I wanted to go to law school. Mm -hmm. Now, after you graduated from law school, um, you worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office. So you were in federal, uh, a federal prosecutor. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in that office? So, you know, again, ironically, at some point, I had to decide whether or not I wanted to be on the defense side or on the prosecutor's side. 
Um, and it was actually my experience working in the probation office that let me say I wanted to be on the prosecutor's side. I felt that defense attorneys do such an important job, but they are responding to a circumstance that's already been kind of uh, have occurred. Um, and then more on the, you know, ironically, on the defensive side, um, the prosecutor gets to make decisions, decide what cases to, you know, what cases to go forward with, what cases, you know, to charge. And I thought that it was extremely important to have the African-American um, person in the prosecutor's office making those decisions. You know, I had the opportunity one time when a police officer had stopped an African-American male and defense counsel filed a motion to suppress. I looked at the police report. I looked at the motion. I chose not to oppose it. Um, I didn't see any reason other than the person's race that the police officer stopped him. And I went to my supervisor and I said, I don't feel comfortable opposing this one. She looked at it. She said, it's your call. Um, I called the defense counsel and said, we're going to nolly the case, which means dismiss it. He was shocked. I said, because I don't feel comfortable defending it. So it was important to be in the office and have the ability to make those kind of decisions, to make sure that the law was being, you know, treated, you know, fairly. Um, when I, you know, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware, you know, we had a circumstances where there was a prison riot. And after the um, guards got the riot under control, the guards took um, individual um, inmates into a larger room and beat them. Um, you know, I was in position to bring that issue to a grand jury, get an indictment, um, and, and, and make sure that, you know, those officers were hold account, held accountable. To no surprise, it wasn't easy. Uh, because in order to make a case like that work, you have to get correctional officers to agree to tell on each other. You know, you don't want your only witnesses other inmates. Um, they're not necessarily the best um, witnesses in front of a jury. It took over a year to get one of the correctional officers to flip. And when he decided that he thought that was the right thing to do, he said, I now have to move. Me, my whole family, he said, we're going to have to move. We will not be able to stay in this community. But it took us over a year to get someone to um, do the right thing. Um, and to me, it was extremely important for me to be in the office to kind of drive those kind of decisions and make sure the you know, black and brown community realized that you know, you know, the Black Lives Matter even then, and that they had a voice to make sure that they were treated with dignity and respect. You know, in light of, in, in light of, of those comments, uh, can you kind of talk about the uh, relationship between prosecutors and police officers and the, uh, the, the necessity of assessing on an ongoing basis their credibility without harming the relationship that exists between you as the prosecutor and those officers who have been investigating and bringing to you uh, evidence that would support any uh, prosecution in which you engage. And I thank you for that, Professor Joyner, because that, that is a challenge and it's a tightrope. Um, you, know, you, you know, a lot of times, you know, prosecutors, when they're in the office behind closed doors, um, don't ask those tough questions. Um, and I had to develop a relation, a, a reputation. I mean, got to the point where people knew that if I would prosecute in a case, they made, they need to make sure that their reports were clean, that they were accurate, um, and, and that, you know, that they, you know, they, they did what they needed to do. Um, you know, there was a time, one time when I had a, you know, during a suppression hearing, I had a police officer on the stand. It was clear to me that he was lying. 
until the point where the judge said, Mr. Green, you probably want to take a recess. And I took, you know, took the recess, went to, to the witness room with the officer and the officer supervising, um, um, the, the sergeant that was supervising. And so we can't have this. This is not, this is not, you know, adequate law. Your, your, your statement that you were making wasn't true. Um, it was clear that you were, you were lying and I can't allow that to happen. But it was building working relationships. Um, you know, there were a lot of times when I had to interact with officers outside cases to build that trust, you know, build that relationship. Um, then right the, you know, one, if they do quality work and someone did something wrong, I will, you know, I'll do my job and I will prepare, but I will be non-negotiable with respect to them doing sloppy work um, and not treating citizens fairly. Um, so it is a working relationship. You know, there are times that you do a lot behind the scenes. You know, we did, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we did a lot of um, training sessions where we would do mock trials. We would do mock, um, you know, suppression hearing to prepare officers how to testify. I always volunteered for that um, because it was important for me to have a good working relationship. In those opportunities, I would joke, I would be light, they would see the other side of me. Um, but, you know, um, during my five years there, I did have a reputation of you're going to play by the book. If you do your job, he will support you. And if you do not, um, he will come after you. Um, but that is a challenge. Um, and it's something that, you know, you have to be mindful of that, you know, you don't just kind of fall into the good old boys, and allow folks to do stuff and look the other way. Um, you have to develop a relationship, but you have to find that balance and make sure you have a good uh, working relationship with the officers so they trust you. And so that that background and experience as a federal prosecutor, no doubt helped you understand uh, at a level where, where many people might not, the issues surrounding uh, police reform because you've actually been involved in it uh, as a participant. Can you talk about discussions that you have um, that you had about the need for police reform and the George Floyd Policing Act bill in particular? So, you know, so as you indicated earlier, um, during the past year, I served as the general counsel um, for the National Bar Association. Um, some of you may know Ben Crump, who was the attorney for the George Floyd family is a past president of the National Bar Association. Um, and the president at the time is C.K. Hoffler in you know, Atlanta. Um, that, you know, working um, as general counsel gave me the opportunity um, to, you know, have conversations with a number of people. Uh, we had a, a chance to meet with um, Cedric Richmond, the former congressman, who's now um, serving as President Biden's um, public engagement um, director. Uh, we had the opportunity to meet with the, the governor of Minnesota, who reached out to us and, and said, well, this happened in my state, and we needed to make some change. So we had a, you know, a lot of conversations from Ben Crump participated. Um, there are times where we would bring in the family to kind of help us um, put context to it. But I think the biggest thing that we make clear at every meeting, there will continue to be uncomfort. There will be a continued feel that brown, black and brown folks are not treated fairly if the process is not transparent, um, that, this, that the, the review of police officers is not um, really honest um, and intrusive, um, that police officers have to be held accountable. 
um, not only criminally, I mean, the jobs should be on the line. Um, the, the other thing that, you know, we, we may happen to the extent that, you know, families harm. Families should be able to recover, um, you know, a compensation for the injuries. Um, one of the things that actually came up um, during our many discussions that I actually did not know about um, when we got a request from a number of African-American police officers, um, not necessarily in all in high profile cases, but there was a few African-American police officers who saw a white colleague cross the line. And then during the interaction with the citizen, the African-American officer stopped the white colleague and said, you're crossing the line. And then later when they go got back to the prison, uh, to the precinct, the African-American officers were um, suspended and disciplined for them interference. So they now started an organization and requested attorney from the National Bar Association to kind of support them when they are now having employment issues uh, with their departments when they were doing the right thing. Um, I did not realize how prevalent it was. You know, I had the opportunity to get on a call and these were represented um, officers from around the country and all of them telling similar stories about within their precinct doing the right thing and then being disciplined um, and some of them being suspended and, 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 and even having to leave their jobs for doing the right thing. So, was it, so it, it is clear that the police reform has to happen at many levels. Uh, you know, one of the issues that also came up is the mental wellness of police officers. Um, there are a number of police officers doing the call and, and, and talk about um, the profile of police officers. You know, to no surprise, a lot of you know, police officers have been in the military and may have some wellness issues that were never addressed. Mm -hmm. and don't have the effective ability to interact with citizens um, and almost have a very adversarial combative relationship. It's almost that they're still in a, on, in a, in a um, military battle. Um, and there's, there's nothing that helps identify. Um, it's, you know, when it comes to mental health and wellness, people try to keep it a secret. Um, even when colleagues know, they look the other way um, and they don't directly address it. Um, in order for effective police report, that has to be part of it as well. Um, checking the, the mental wellness of officers. Well, along with that, uh, can, can you can you kind of add in the impact of the mental health uh, issue and uh, militarization of the uh, police force? So, so Professor Joyner, that's a good point. I think that's part of the problem. Um, and and um, is having too many officers who approach the street as if they're in a military center. Um, not seeing, you know, citizens, particularly, unfortunately, citizens of color. You know, there are times when we have certain officers, when they see a citizen of color, their reaction is that they will react the same way if they were in a uh, military exercise. Um, and not trying to de-escalate, um, try to, in fact, take it up a level um, and have a combative relationship. Uh, it seems to me that for effective police reform, that has to be addressed, that has to be recognized and has to be effectively responded to. Because um, officers actually do have that. You know, one of the things I had the opportunity when I served as assistant U.S. attorney, in fact, in my office, in the bookcase behind me, I actually have an award for the DEA. But in fact, I did not receive the uh, 
award for handling drug cases. I actually received the award because I served as a trainer um, for new DEA agents. Um, we would have an all-day trainer. Some officers, um, some assistant U.S. attorneys uh, would accuse, you know, weights and probable cause, uh, where others had um, other things to address. My role was actually talking about agent liability when you cross the line. Um, and a lot of the DEA agents were, you know, had spent a few years as police officers, um, and it was always interesting what the exchange looked like. Um, I would spend the first five, 10 minutes trying to gain their trust, and then toward the end, they're laughing. Um, but they did have a different mindset that you had to work to change. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And we have with us as our guest in our Zoom studio, David Green, a professor of law at NCCU School of Law. He's also a former federal prosecutor and former general counsel for the National Bar Association. We're going to have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. The purpose of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act is to eradicate policing techniques that could lead to death. The specific techniques in the bill would be banned at the federal level as well as local and state police agencies receiving federal funding. The act would ban no-knock warrants in federal drug cases. A no-knock warrant led to the fatal shooting of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor by police last year in Louisville, Kentucky. The act would end qualified immunity, which normally protects law enforcement officers from most civil lawsuits. The act would lower the burden of proof to prosecute police. The act would prohibit racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling by law enforcement agencies at the local, state, and federal levels and mandate training against such discriminatory profiling. It would mandate the use of body cameras for all local and state policing agencies receiving federal funding. The act would also create a National Police Misconduct Registry to prevent police officers who are fired or pushed out for bad performance from being hired by other agencies. I'm Caitlin Chesney with your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us uh, this evening and uh, continuing to participate in this uh, discussion with uh, Professor David Green. Uh, Professor Green has had uh, an extensive uh, background and experience dealing with uh, police officers and the uh, criminal justice uh, process. And uh, we're talking tonight about the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and uh, why it is uh, necessary and then uh, what is its chances of uh, passage. So with that, uh, Professor Green, I want to just ask you, uh, policing is typically a local affair. Uh, It is controlled at the uh, local level by either the uh, city council or town councils, which create 
uh, the police department or uh, a, a sheriff, which is typically a state officer. But it is uh, basically focused on local affairs. Uh, why is it uh, necessary for there to be some federal oversight of what is traditionally a local uh, uh, political and uh, enforcement matter? Mr. I think that's part of the problem, and I think it has led to some of the issues. We have seen historically that um, the federal government or federal legislation has to get involved, particularly in civil rights um, areas, when the states or the locality is not willing to do it. It means in those circumstances where we know the people of color in those com communities don't have the effective political efficacy to do it on their own, that is when it's necessary for the government, the, the U.S. government, to get involved and say that particularly with respect to um, based on race, when people are being treated based on race, we have to do it um, um, at a national level because it will not be done. Um, and ironically, that issue came up regularly uh, you know, when I served as assistant U.S. attorney and I would decide, you know, I would meet with the U.S. attorney and we'd have incidents and we'd say, you know, the U.S. attorney's office has to get involved. Regularly, agents will come to me and say, David, I'm not comfortable in this one. Why am I going to a locality and telling them how to police? Um, it was a challenge. You know, I had a case one time when um, we had a African-American family, um, you know, move into a predominantly white area. A little girl was about 10 and there were individuals in the community with Confederate flags. And whenever she left to go to school, um, they would howl and scream and threaten her um, and scare her to the point that she didn't want to go to school. The family called the police, the local police, to say that my little girl is being threatened. The police responded by saying, well, then keep her in the house. If you keep her in the house, she won't be threatened. So ultimately, the U.S. Attorney's Office had to get involved because the family did the right thing, called 911, you know, down 911, got the local police, and the local police said, you know, would not support the family. So I had one of the top FBI agents go actually go down. Um, he actually did a thorough uh, report, but at the end of his report, each and every time he would say, I recommend that this case be closed um, because he felt it was a local matter. Despite, he said he met with the family, he met with the little girl, um, he saw how horrific that she was being treated. At each time, the agent would recommend the case be closed. And obviously, I would say, no, we're going to keep it open. Um, but because of that challenge between the federal level and the local level, but the reason why federally we had to get involved, because the local was not going to protect the rights. And it was clear they were not going to protect the rights because it was an African-American family. Uh, and that's a challenge that continues. That's a challenge that exists today. Now, how 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 would the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act address some of the issues that uh, uh, that we miss at the local level, or that uh, the uh, I guess uh, oversight uh, is not present? Well, one of the huge um, um, parts of the act is the accountability in the reporting. Um, it has to include some type of reporting that each um, local department has to do things to demonstrate. 
And ironically, we see that in other areas. You know, there are important requirements for local police with respect to how accessible they are to citizens who are deaf. Do they know how to use TDDs? Um, it has to be expanded to uh, a reporting requirement that interacts, you know, that keeps track of when you get certain complaints, particularly complaints that suggest that a crime is motivated based on race, um, how you document them and how you respond to that. Department, the federal Department of Justice has to be an active participant and then monitoring that um, because without that, uh, we're not going to see the effective change. Um, so that has to be part of it. It has to be certain, you know, training that has to be required. Um, you know, part of the, the act as well is the body cams. You know, can the, you know, can the world, you know, make sure is their funding such that every officer should, when it's interact with the citizen has a body cam so the world can see what's being happened. Uh, so that has to happen as well. It has to be transparent. Um, you know, we have to, you know, one part is, is community policing. Um, in the sense that having, you know, diverse panels evaluate what the police departments are doing on a regular basis. I um, mean, that, that has to be taken, uh, has to be part of the process as well, and has to be taken into consideration if it's going to be meaningful police reform. It has to be, we have to be a metamorphosis of what we saw historically um, if we're going to really have real, some real change. And when you mentioned reporting, it made me think about the reporting um, related to excessive force and, and the different types of techniques that can and cannot be used. Can you talk about what is included in the bill that speaks to excessive force issues? So, in, so one important part is, you know, uh, prohibition on chokeholds. Um, obviously, we've seen tragic deaths. Um, as it relates to um, police officers um, um, using um, chokehold and interacting with citizens. We've seen that a number of times. So it has to be a prohibition on, you know, on that. Um, you know, any type of, you know, what other tools that police officers have, it has to be a requirement that um, police officers interact with citizens with the intent to de-escalate um, and not use force, um, you know, when it's not necessary. But the biggest part of the bill that has to, that that's so extremely important is the prohibition on the, on the chokeholds. Now, one of the issues that that come up uh, with respect to complaints about police misconduct, uh, the wrongful death of uh, of citizens at the hands of police, is this concept of uh, qualified immunity. Can you kind of explain just what qualified immunity is? And then how has that impacted uh, the ability to hold uh, police officers accountable for their uh, misdeeds, their misconduct? So, you know, so qualified immunity comes up in, a, in the circumstances when a family wants to file a wrongful death. Um, you know, the family will file a lawsuit typically under the civil rights statute, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983, that says police officers cannot act under color of law um, and abuse of rights. The police department and individual police officers have something called qualified immunity. Um, it allows them to avoid um, being subject to a civil suit um, under this immunity. Now, it's qualified, um, and it, but it allows a less police officer to act in some type of reckless, wanted way, um, kind of an extreme way 
the police officer is protected. Um, so it, it bars citizens from getting being compensated um, due to the wrongful access uh, by police officers. And to no surprise that that has been the biggest political stumbling block uh, to the extent that we've seen both versions of the act fail um, and not make it to the Senate. One of the biggest um, obstacles has been qualified immunity, has been um, predominantly Republican um, senators and legislators who are trying to protect police officers uh, are being exposed to civil lawsuits and not willing to budge on qualified immunity. Um, that seems to have been the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why um, the law has not passed. And, you know, we hear in the news when a police department uh, settles with a family for a wrongful death claim. Um, and so we know that the families in certain situations are being compensated, although we should always emphasize that no amount of money can compensate for the loss of a loved one. Can you talk about why qualified immunity is so important in trying to curb the abuses when people may not fully understand if it looks as though families are being compensated by the police department. And, and I appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Dean Dawson, because it's so important for us to recognize that as community that we are seeing some of the most horrific ones. Um, it's, a, it's important to recognize the young lady who video, videotaped George Floyd's murder. That was pivotal to his family getting some compensation. Um, but we also had to recognize that these interactions with police officers happen so too often where there is no recording. Um, and then in those circumstances when it is so horrific and you have it on camera, um, the people are reacting. But even the examples that, I, that I've been partnered with, the little girl going to school being threatened, that wasn't caught on a camera. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's so many times when they're not, you don't have the, the high profile aspect of it. Um, and police officers uh, are literally getting away with murder. Um, you have, you know, you have police officers looking the other way. I indicated earlier when African-American police officers speak up, they're losing their jobs or their jobs are at risk. Um, so you don't always have that opportunity. So when you have something like a standard like qualified immunity, um, that says that, you know, the police officer protects it unless the police officer act in some kind of overly egregious way, some, you know, gross and wanton or reckless way, the police officers are protected. Um, and so hopefully citizens don't just look at the George Floyd police and that is a different case because obviously it was so tragic, um, so tragic, and it was caught on camera, and it was the most egregious. I mean, the length of time that the police officers spent on his neck, I mean, it's just, it was just tough to watch. Um, so we don't always have that level of evidence. Uh, we're not able to rely on all other police officers to speak up. And in all candor, there are not a lot of people in the prosecutor's office that are willing to speak up. Um, so it, we have challenges on so many levels that, you know, in a typical case, a lot of citizens are not getting the recourse that they deserve. Well, you know, get, getting back to, to the to the local aspect of, of, of these uh, of these problems, isn't what you just discussed exacerbated by the fact that uh, 
at the local level, police officers are given are given wide uh, uh, privilege to use force against uh, citizens, and in fact, uh, can rely upon their subjective judgment as to when force should be used and the amount of force that might be applicable in a particular situation. So I, you're right. I mean, that that does cause the, the, the problem um, that there is that level of subjectivity um, and police officers, you know, at times um, can rely on extreme, you know, cases. You know, they are able to point to one, you know, circumstance uh, where a citizen might have acted um, uh, in an inappropriate way and now use that as a basis in all other circumstances. Um, you know, you could have a minor traffic stop. And as we all see when we're driving, it'd be a minor traffic stop in certain neighborhoods. It's a no surprise, you know, traffic stop, and you have six, seven officers, and you would think that something, there was some major issue going on. Um, is, you know, the, the point that you raised earlier, Professor Jordan, it, it's that almost that military reaction. It's just like, all right, I'm in combat. Um, so let me get all my protection. Let me kind of get my gear because I'm responding to um, in a combat mode as opposed to I'm interacting with a citizen, with my neighbors. And let me see what's, what's going on. Let me see how I can resolve this situation in a way that this citizen can walk away. Um, we, we do have that kind of military combat viewpoint. And the harsh reality in the last kind of six, seven years Certain rhetoric being presented by certain people has encouraged it. Um, and we, we, we've seen how, um, you know, folks that a lot of us can see that oppose the rights efforts are now just as engaged and is now kind of building a climate of, you know, opposing Black Lives Matter in every way. Um, and I think in this very, these very sensitive political times, uh, we have a cultural shift in that direction that's having an, an even more negative impact on citizens of the black and brown community. Professor Green, when you mentioned that these, you know, officers are getting away with it and, and the um, elimination of qualified immunity will help address that. Um, and even in those situations where an officer might be disciplined um, and, and terminated or let go from a particular mm -hmm. office, one of the things that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act recognizes the, is the need for a federal database of officers. So they're not able to move from one office to another office or from one state to another state. Can you talk about why having a federal national database of officers um, and their misconduct is so important? It's for that reason, I, I think that we recognize that um, there is a culture in the police department to kind of look out for each other um, and feel that the police officer is a victim. Uh, we have seen that happen extremely often, even more recently, even in North Carolina, when you know you may have an officer who's let go from working on campus. And ironically, we have in one of our communities an officer with let's go for an inappropriate interaction with a student on a campus within a month was actually now in the local police department within a couple of blocks from the university. And so there was still interacting with the same students. In fact, the student 
um, actually ran into him from a, a place where they actually went go to eat, eat sandwiches to hang out. It's literally two blocks from the campus. So let go from the campus, and a month later, got a job with the police department uh, because we have that kind of support that they provide for each other. So if the concern was this police officer did not have the training and skill set and mindset to interact with students, well, he still interacted with students because he now has a job two blocks from the campus that is actually heavily populated. Um, and we kind of have to stop that. We have to make sure because without that database, um, that's going to continue. And the, we, the other harsh reality is that some of these officers are being considered um, heroes um, in communities. You know, I particularly recall the circumstances where a police officer had uh, was accused of um, using excessive force uh, with an African American um, pastor. There was a rally um, given, and the, the police officers were treated as if they were heroes. They were cheered and and supported. Um, so they are able to kind of move from one department to the other and continue that bad activity and even encouraged. Um, so without that database, it's nothing that allows for the accessibility to make sure it doesn't happen and the problems will continue to get worse. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking with uh, Professor David Green from the North Carolina Central University School of Law about the uh, George Floyd Justice and uh, Policing. And I guess we're really also talking about uh, police misconduct. Uh, to, uh, to a larger uh, extent. Uh, we, we, we're going to take a break right now. I want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this, uh, this discussion with uh, Professor Green. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your community event spotlight. Are you looking for something to do in Durham? Check out the Civil Rights Legacy Downtown Durham Walking Tour. This event is held every third Saturday at 10 a.m. from now until November 20th. The tour is a great way to learn about the rich history of African Americans in the city of Durham. You can find more details about this event and register at discoverdurham.com slash events. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Event Spotlight. Thank you. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with one of our esteemed colleagues, David Green, who is a professor of law at NCCU School of Law, a former, former federal prosecutor and former general counsel for the National Bar Association. And we've been talking about the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, and we've been talking about the specific provisions that address the key needs for police reform. Um, as we come back in our third segment, we need to turn and talk about why this bill has not yet become law. I think everyone recognizes that there's a need for police reform. Uh, we've had a lot of promises. We've had a lot of people um, expressing their support for police reform. 
but we it hasn't gotten done. So, Professor Green, what are your thoughts about why this bill has continued to stall? So, unfortunately, it, you know, it is more political, um, and it's it, it just as many proponents of the uh, George Floyd Policing Act. Um, there's other people who, you know, are in a mix, want to make sure that it doesn't happen. Um, you know, you have, you know, Congressman Karen Bass, um, as she was pushing the legislation, with particularly looking at the impact it had on black and brown communities. Um, you have other legislators are more concerned about the impact it has on police officers um, and protecting police officers and, uh, and maintaining the status quo. Um, it has been an, an unfortunate political football. Um, you know, it, there was at one point that, you know, talking with the White House um, uh, representatives and talking with um, Senator Booker, uh, which one of the opportunities that I have when I'm serving as a general counsel. So about maybe a few months um, before the anniversary of George Floyd's death, um, had the opportunity to meet with officials in the White House, meet with Senator Booker, and there was this hope that on an anniversary of George Floyd's death, that it would be a bipartisan statement where the bill had been passed. Um, there was a lot of efforts, and the family um, of George Floyd's family was in D.C. Um, um, the president of the National Bar Association was there. The vice president of the country was, you know, was, was there. Um, there was there was this hope. Uh, that the the bill would be passed, you know, uh, during the anniversary of his death, um, and it didn't happen. Um, there were, you know, there was a lot of behind the scenes discussions, um, um, including, you know, Republican senators calling the family, trying to get them to compromise, you know, their request, um, so that you know a bill would be passed, but not having the teeth and not having all the provisions that we recognized that was important. Um, so it was a flurry of conversation a week, even within a couple of weeks um, of his anniversary, where many of us was hopeful that something would come, but they were just too far apart. Um, there was not movement on um, with respect to qualified immunity, with respect to other circumstances. There was some folks that wanted more in there to protect officers and give the officers more resources. Um, and it just didn't seem to move. Um, you know, there were certain cynics that suggested that um, when Juneteenth was made a holiday, that's what we, that was to get. That you're not getting the George Floyd Policing Act, we'll give you the Juneteenth holiday. Uh, but that was the compromise. Um, so when it didn't pass on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, um, you know, I think the momentum kind of lost. Um, and, and I'm probably one of those cynics that said, when we agreed to the Juneteenth thief as a holiday, we probably gave up more than we realized we were. Well, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the notion that you have uh, these strong police unions uh, mm -hmm. who are in uh, opposition uh, to this uh, bill plus a uh, lack of an appetite on the part of many members of the uh, Senate, uh, mm -hmm. other than the African-Americans and people of color. Uh, with that reality, is it likely that 
that this George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act is going to move any further than it is right now. My reaction, I just don't see it happen. Uh, I think we have momentum as we were building, uh, leading up to George the anniversary of his death. Um, we know we recognized during our most recent um, presidential election, there was 70 million people voting one way and about 70 million people voting the other way. Those, those individuals are still our neighbors. Um, uh, I, I think that um, if any version of uh, act um, comes out, it's not going to have the teeth um, and, it, and what we really need. Um, I think the important thing is that, you know, there continue to be eyes and watching. Uh, we've seen some movement at the state level, some individual states, uh, but even when we had the opportunity to meet uh, with the governor of Minnesota, um, he was very candid. Um, it was it was his political career on the line, and he was getting substantial pushback even at the state level. Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity um, this past summer. We actually at North Carolina Central School of Law had a um, seminar over the summer, and each of the students who was part of the assignment had to look at two states, and they couldn't select the same states, and one had to be a northern you know, state that we considered more progressive and the other one had to be a Southern state that didn't seem to have the same level of support um, as relates to civil rights issues. And it was nothing surprising that kind of came out of their research. Um, even states like Pennsylvania and Minnesota that you had some legislators being very progressive, still not at the full level that we would wanna see uh, uh, with a law that really protects a black and brown community. Um, so we don't see the same level of movement. And to no surprise, states like Alabama and other Southern states, to the extent that they call it police reform, it really was actually more supporting police officers than it was really reforming. Um, so even at the state and local level, we don't see a lot of movement. And I just unfortunately don't see um, um, the movement that we would hope for at the federal level. So people who are the victims of uh, police misconduct now. What is it that you would advise them to do? Uh, what is what what steps should they take uh, if they seek to uh, redress a particular issue or concern or problem that they've encountered? So, in in in, a, in response to you know Dean Dawson's question earlier about why we saw some success with you know George Floyd. I mean, not seeing, you know, full-blown success. I think each time that something happens, the community needs to turn its attention, get its eyes, do its own internal investigation, find out what's happened, do its own documentation, make sure that it makes sure the information is accurate um, and make sure, you know, that we're involved. You know, I would hope that whenever an incident happens, that we all quickly turn to our attention assist the family and get answers to their questions. And unfortunately, when a family member's going through tragic circumstances, their immediate attention is their loved ones, possibly you know, putting someone to rest. We need to rally behind those folks because we recognize what makes certain cases successful. It's evidence, witnesses, and proof. Um, we need to kind of help 
you know, make sure we have a process, make sure we are using, um, you know, social media, you know, um, you know, get news reporters to come by and, and, and get engaged and find out what's going on. Highlight this each and every time and each community start its own documentation. Keep track of what's happening. Um, and being able to establish this is not a pattern. You know, pay attention to how officers on you know beat um, assignments, how they regularly interact with citizens. This is the third time we've heard this officer had a kind of a negative exchange for the person of color. We as a community need to keep track of that. We need to report it. We need to write letters to the editors when we see police departments not responding. When something like that happened, we can point to a department where three or four officers have gotten complaints against them, but they're still at on their jobs. Then let's go to the media. Let's do an editorial. Um, let's educate. Um, go into community centers. Go into the churches. Make sure that I've, you know that we're informing folks. This is how you properly document. I mean, that's something we pushed at North Carolina Central. I'm always urging my students to come out to the community and. You know, you're learning something. You're given an opportunity that the average citizen doesn't have. And there's responsibility that comes with that. You know, we all tell our students, we hold you to the highest level because your community is relying on you. Your community is well, you, relying you know, on your education. Yes. Yeah. You know, over the last 30 years, last 35 years, we have had a significant increase in the number of uh, African-American police officers, uh, police officers of color, uh, police uh, officers who have been elevated uh, to the level of chiefs of uh, various uh, departments uh, here in Durham, in Raleigh, in Charlotte, and a number of other places. Uh, why hasn't that stemmed these uh, seemingly ongoing incidents of uh, police uh, misconduct, is it out of control or uncontrollable? Well, I think the challenge that, you know, even officers of color have is still kind of trying to fit into the kind of club, so to speak. Um, they can kind of continually do the right thing. Um, and I, you know, it, I, I think, you know, that's something, you know, the officers, I think, you know, deal with on a regular basis, um, you know, we, we see that, um, you know, I, you know we, I look at the local Boys and Girls Club and I look at officers of color who sit on the boards and volunteer to do work. Um, and I think they have an inattention as to kind of what to do, but on the same token, when they're interacting with other officers, um, how comfortable are they speaking up? Um, they're trying to fit in. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we have to be mindful of who's being hired, even if they are a person of color, um, you know, what is their mindset and what is the kind of their comfort level. Um, so I, we have had some success. We've had uh, a lot more community interaction, um, but we don't necessarily have the change even when we have an African-American chief. Um, but I think they're trying to fit into both worlds sometimes. And I think there's a challenge associated with that. Yeah, Professor Green, I want to go back to something you had said about um, in response to um, Professor Joyner's question, mm. you know, what your thoughts were about this being successful. And you mentioned the loss of momentum. You mentioned uh, the Juneteenth holiday. I like what you said, that we gave up more than we realized. 
Um, and the other thing that I think bears emphasizing is that we have a midterm election that's coming up. And, um, you know, the House vote that passed the bill was 220 to 212, which was a smaller margin than the previous passage. And so, and it's anticipated, which is typically the case, that the party who doesn't control the White House does gain seats in the House and possibly the Senate. So this was having a Democrat in the White House, having a Democratic controlled House of Representatives, having a Senate that is split 50-50, uh, but with a Democratic vice president. If we weren't able to get it done this time, it really doesn't bode well considering what the makeup of Congress may very well be after the midterm. Can you just share your thoughts about the importance of emphasizing the need for people to vote and to think about these other issues that have a great impact on legislation that may or may not be enacted? So I, I think you're right. I agree that you know, having lost that momentum, it's not going to get better. I don't think we're going to pick it up. And again, I think it goes back to how important it is for many of us to play that role in pushing and educating the community. This will be another huge midterm election, and this will be um, um, uh, impactful as to whether or not we, there is any police reform in any, in any format. Um, so I think it's extremely important that um, that people again participating in registering to vote, being heard, being vocal, um, ask those tough questions, um, you know, participate in discussions where um, you're asking legislators are, if you're elected, what will be your position on this? Will you kind of re, uh, re, uh, give this back on the table, get it back uh, as part of the discussion? Um, but I, I would, I would hope that we would see this. Um, as a huge need to be extremely active um, because otherwise in a few years, we're gonna be back to where we were. Um, so, you know, folks need to kind of continue to get on, you know, get out there and vote. Students, undergrad students, law students, professional students need to take this as an important responsibility. You know, what can you do to get people out to vote and what can you do to help educate the community in a way? When you're in the barbershop, have a you know, respectful conversation. When you get your hair done, you know, bring this up. When you go to church, uh, wherever you at, you know, bring this conversation up and, and, and elevate the intellect and the information that's provided. And you are a, an educator at heart. Um, I think it was destined for you to be a law professor. You mentioned that you were um, always eager to train when you were a federal prosecutor. Uh, we know that you did a fellowship focusing on teaching, and then we have the privilege and pleasure of having you as a professor of 22 years here at the law school. And we really appreciate you emphasizing that education piece because, you know, there were people who were advocating for police reform and and understanding at a very minute level the problems with the criminal justice system. Uh, and the George Floyd video really exposed to a large segment of society what so many people already knew. Can you just talk a little bit in our last few minutes about 
the importance of the general public educating themselves about our criminal justice system as a whole. I, mean, I think that is that that is so huge. Um, you know, you know, family members. We all have, you know, you know, family members who are interacting with you know with citizens. I mean, interacting with police officers. Um, and it's important that we just don't just rely on a social media, you know, kind of quick statement. We have to kind of dig a little bit more. Um, you know, you can look at police reports. Just don't rely on what a friend posts on Facebook. Um, you know, if you're, you're a mother, a father, a grandmother, aunt, a cousin, a sibling, you know, make sure we're taking the conversation to the next level. Pull up to the extent, you know, pull up, um, you know, discussion, pull up police reports. When there's community opportunities to kind of go listen and kind of interact and kind of learn more, you know, you know, you know, do that, get involved. You know, I know as a small kid, you know, I grew up in New York. I don't know how many core meetings I had to go with my mom. When my mother was going to, you know, Congress or racial equality meeting, I must have been 10 years old and I have to have, have to go because you know, my mother was a community activist. Um, and I think it's because of that, um, I was probably even more informed than an average kid because my mother was, you know, she was at those meetings asking for after school jobs, asking for um, lunches in, in the community center, asking for lunches in the, in the, in the, in the, in the classrooms uh, um, during school. So it's so important that we, as you know, in the black and brown community, really take it up and get even more involved in community um, policing and monitoring and making sure that we are well informed, not just the casual um, information, but the more you know, the better advocate you can be for your family and your friends. All right. Well, that is a great note to end on. Um, and we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, David Green, a professor of law at NCCU School of Law, former federal prosecutor and former general counsel for the National Bar Association. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our guests, for spending your Sunday evening listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.